Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Dash Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Gammage, and I've got another exciting opportunity to talk to amazing Dr. Kelsey Reed. She's a nationally certified school psychologist. She's the co-author of Hacking Deficit Thinking, and she has a lot of powerful thoughts, ideas, and frameworks to help us be better versions of ourselves. Now, before we get into our conversation with Dr. Reed, I want to remind you to go visit our YouTube channel at SEL Educators and subscribe, and also to our website, seleducators.com, to learn more about our solutions for school communities. With that, Dr. Reed, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I've been I've been keeping up with you a little bit. I know you're, you're relaxing on vacation this summer and, you know, yes. on the balconies and all that. That's that's <laughs> good. Has it been nice to, to take a step back? You've had a quite a busy year, I, I would imagine. Yes, I have. And it has been very needed for me to take a step back with the book launching and being early career. We've had a lot of presentations after the book. So hmm. I've been kind of relaxing before I dive back into all things strength based pretty soon. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. I, I love it. And, you know, we have some, so I know Dr. McClure as well, and, and you know, Dr. McClure, y'all are both so powerful. And I've always, when I started off in education, I learned from an asset-based community development lens. And so I've always carried that language in my mind, asset-based person-first approaches, and really looking within the community to strengthen the community. Yeah. And when y'all came out with hacking deficit thinking and just the just the line shifting from what's wrong to what's strong is such a paradigm shift that I don't know if people were ready. How, how did how did hacking deficit thinking come about and, and where did the ideas to reframe this deficit mindset into a strengths-based mindset come from? Yeah, and thank you so much. I think it's, this is such a, it's a very needed shift for our field to make. So I'll um, kind of start from my, I guess, journey is my dissertation was on this topic of deficit thinking. So mm. I have always just been, I can't even remember, I had an aha moment in grad school um, because my program was not very strength-based oriented or asset-based. Um, and so working in the schools, I just was feeling uncomfortable about how we talked about students, how negative we were, how focused mm. we were on identifying deficits. And I, I didn't like it and I couldn't name what that was. And then I read an article. I wish I could shout out the article. I'll, I'll get it to you later, but it <laughs> named deficit thinking. Um, and I was like, wow, this is a really interesting concept. And so um, went on to do research in that regard um, for my dissertation. And along kind of on the sidelines, I'd been I'd met um, Byron McClure at a conference and we kept in contact. He's doing a lot of amazing work. He was a practitioner at the time and just he's always had that strength based perspective as well. So he was kind of doing the work while I was researching the work. Mm. So we kind of collabed together um, and the idea for the book. So he was reached out to by a publishing company and asked if I could join him. And we kind of came to this topic of deficit thinking because like I said, in the field of education, in our field, in school psychology, I think this is just a conversation that hasn't been held that needs mm -hmm. to be held. So we went from there, the idea of reframing, it's just, I think it's a powerful word. It's a powerful thing and it's within our control. So mm -hmm. really, we really wanted to focus the book on things that you do have control over and our thoughts are, the biggest area that we have control over. Yeah, um, it's it's such a fun concept too. So I'm, I have a psychology background, but when they told me I had to 
go to school for four to six more years and get my doctorate. I, I quickly changed paths, but I, I still consider myself an organizational psychologist. And so like you you said it, these these ideas were always in your mind, but you didn't necessarily have the, the framework or ideology to unpack it. In your research, and obviously it's it's all mapped out in the book, but is there which reframe of the eight, or maybe it didn't make it in the book, which reframe was most impactful for you personally? Mm, I love that question. I think ah, I have three. Okay, let me narrow it down to two at least. Um, Let's go through all three. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> okay. So I think I think my first one would be um, the reframing reframing our data about. So there's a chapter. It's on humanizing our data. So humanizing our students, um, I think this is really big. And actually, I'm going to stick with this as my, my favorite one, okay. because I think it's really relevant for us, um, for me as a school psychologist, and just for educators who spend a lot of time collecting data. We get to this point where we view our students as just numbers, and we start to, we really create stories about these numbers without by and we mm. end up forgetting that these are human beings these are students and they're more than just that number so whether it be um you know their grades academic performance standardized testing measures of course like really so in the book we talk a lot about um really reframing that to look at the bigger picture and collecting more holistic data collecting more we call it street data um shout mm. out to the book street data it's an amazing book um, so yeah, I think, I think that would be my favorite one. I just, I'm also just a data girl. So that yeah. one might not resonate with everyone, but I think for me, um, I really like that one. I mean, I think it, I think it makes sense in looking at street data and, and going back to a point earlier, like as a psychologist or myself in psychology, I've always probably been the opposite research methods and statistics was my least favorite class. So I, I love the, I love what the numbers give me but the numbers are a snapshot in time. And we've got to do more work to say, okay, this is what the numbers say, but what do the numbers mean? Let me really unpack these. And um, you know, I've had the experience myself getting some data from an assessment tool and then under seeing the data, I think going to the reframes, my first thought is to blame somebody or something. Man, I'm a bad teacher. Man, these kids are jacked up. Wow, this data is awful. And the immediacy of the negative thought is overwhelming. It's like, it's hard to think about what's strong and what's right with the information. Um, I, I probably quote y'all, I can't tell you how many sessions I've done this summer. I, some, I just bring the book with me sometimes now so I can just pull it out and say, hey y'all, read this so we can, we can make that shift and transition. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at teachbetter.com slash podcasts, and we'll see you at the next episode. As you think about strength-based practices and even the strengths-based collective, how do we take, I know there's a lot of implementation strategies y'all have, but how do we take the idea of deficit thinking and apply it personally first and then in our school communities professionally? Yeah, that's a great question. And I love that you asked about the personal piece first, because I do think that it's so important to look inward before we start doing this work at the school level. Um, so I'm gonna quote my co-author Byron here. He always says this, we need to, as an individual, as a professional, learn how to name, know, and use your strengths. So just as we're deficit oriented in schools, we're deficit oriented in how we think about ourselves. So. Research suggests it's really hard for 
anyone to name their strengths. Um, it feels uncomfortable. Our society just didn't do a good job of setting us up to be able to talk about our strengths. So that would be the first piece. Um, the second piece, and we have a really great, I think it's the third chapter in the book, really focuses on reframing a lot of those deficit distortions that we have about students. And that's a lot of internal work that we need to do as well um, about the ways that our education systems and training programs have prepared us to look mm -hmm. for negatives, look for deficits. So I think that would be a good starting point and on the um, internal side. I think on the outside, um, kind of when you interact with others, one thing that I really, a really easy thing that I try to do is reframing my adjectives. And um, I think this is also in the third chapter, um, maybe the fourth chapter, I might be getting it wrong. Um, but when we hear certain words um, being used about students in schools, um, such as um, non-compliant, um, thinking of ways to to reframe those things into more positive attributes, because first of all, you know, I, I don't like all of the D words. What is it? Um, disrespect, um, disobedient. There, there's all, all the D yeah, words that we know are, are implicit. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think so learning how to take attention seeking is more connection seeking. How can we reframe mm. the behaviors that we see among students in schools into strengths and then helping students to understand um, that you do have strengths. And even though you're getting in trouble a lot for whatever these behaviors are, how can we help them see and use their I like to say this to use your powers for good instead of evil. Mm -hmm. So rather than using that um, quote unquote, attention seeking behavior, um, or connection seeking behavior to, um, you know, distract your peers, how can we use it in a way that feels good for you and makes um, a positive contribution to the school community. Mm -hmm. So that's for me, those kind of individual conversations with students, I really like, um, just as a school psych, that's kind of like the easiest way for me to make an impact is at that individual student level. Yeah, well, and I would, I would say Dr. Reed too, not just as the school psych, but as a teacher and as a as a school leader, you know, I, I would, <clears throat> I I have, even if I shouldn't say it, I, I don't have many academic certifications. I got my psychology degree, but I don't have an academic background. I have my career development certification. My success in school has come from relationships with the kids. Mm -hmm. And I can think about students, uh, multiple students who just needed support, you know, just just needed somebody to help develop their sense of self-efficacy or to believe in them so they could get over the hump, you know, and and, and I've seen, I can't remember if this was um, with Dr. McClure and, and with the presentation in him where he showed how essentially you rewrite IGPs and the IGP might typically, or excuse me, IEP might have 13 pages and all of them are negative. And he showed these um, sentences or paragraphs, how you would rewrite a paragraph to make it and frame it in a more positive light for the student. I think that's a that's a lot of care, Dr. Reed. You know, and as much emphasis as we put on pedagogy and curriculum, I think we'd get a lot farther if we focused on relationships and communication. Yep, that's it. You know, that's, I, that's it. That just makes so much more sense to 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 focus on things that way and. Um, maybe one more practice. NEA has a uh, restorative practices certification, mm. and they had an activity in there called the circle of efficacy, where you had to think about the students that you were successful at reaching and teaching, those that you struggled to reach and teach, 
And what are the characteristics about those students that either draw you to them or pull you away from them? And that was an eye opener for me as well. We talk about reframes where I recognized that I was uh, really only approaching students that were like me. They wore their heart on the sleeve. They had a lot of energy. They talked a lot. They were um, connection seekers, but those kids that were quiet or that that waited to be called upon or waited to raise their hand or wouldn't be out of turn, I, I almost ignored them or neglected them. And that wasn't out of intentionality. That was just me having to understand my strengths and my bias in this way too. Um, how have you seen now as a practitioner, all this research that you've done, what's different about the way that you support your students versus how a traditional school psych might do the same? Yeah, I um, I really love this question too. You have great questions today. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think for me, one thing that I have been really intentional about. Well, I'll give you three things. Um, the first thing is with every student I work with, I always use a strength based interview protocol. So we mm -hmm. released this on the Strength Based Collective's website. It's free for anyone to access. We have different age levels. Um, I would encourage anyone to check it out if you're interested. But I can say, because I, um, I've experienced, you know, um, testing sessions where I don't use this and sessions where I do use this, mm. the level of like connection that I feel with the students and like just the, it calms them down. They feel it's just, it's just a really great way to start a testing session because we're talking all things about what they like to do, what they think they're good at, what they think they're better at than anyone else. It's very kid friendly mm -hmm. and just get lots of smiles and laughs. And you can really kind of get to know the student on a deeper level rather than your traditional interview, which is, you know, what, what do you like to do for fun? Of course. And then what are you good at in school? What are you not good at in school? Things like that. Thank it's you. just kind of an easier way to like ease them into the process. So that's the first thing. The second is a strength-based assessment. So I usually use the VIA. Um, it's a free tool, it's online, and um, it it's pretty long, but it gives students their top five strengths. They love it. Everyone loves to learn about themselves. Everyone loves to hear positive things about themselves. The kids don't hear that a lot in the school. So leaving them, and I always print them out a copy of it so they can keep you know what their, what their five strengths are. Mm -hmm. And then the third piece is I share all of this during the IEP meeting even if um, it's frowned upon. I know a lot of times IEP coordinators are very like, let's get to the eligibility. That's your job here, psychologist. But for me, I, I'm i not about that. I'm going to talk about mm -hmm. what I learned from the strength-based interview, what I learned from the strength-based assessment. And then I will get to the, the challenges that the student is facing. Become your best self with bestself.co. They have 90-day journals, six-month action plans, daily journals, gratitude cards, relationship cards, all kinds of things to help you become a better version of yourself. Visit bestself.co and use the code GAMAGE for 15% off your next order. That, that's, that makes a difference for the kid and that makes a difference for the parent. Yep. You know, I work in a lot of rural communities as well, and I have a lot of parents that just say, hey, I, I taught him or her everything I can. Yep. It's on you now. And so for a parent, when they go into an IEP meeting and all they're hearing is what's wrong with their child, mm -hmm. that doesn't help the parent either. You know, but to, to hear what's good about your son, you're also given that parent language that they can use as well. And they, that, that parent can start to see what's right with the child and what's strong with the child. 
Um, this is good stuff. I'm you. I, I've done my research. That's why I've got these questions for you. I've, <laughs> I've been in the deficit thinking and strength based collective. Uh, moving moving that way to the strengths based collective. Is that is the strengths based collective first? What is it, and is it an extension of hacking deficit thinking? Yeah. So it is essentially what Byron and I wanted to do was we we have the book right, hacking deficit thinking, which is kind of setting the stage for why we need to do this, some tangible strategies. Mm-hmm. And the strength-based collective is like, what, do, what does this look like in schools? Um, so we're providing resources, we're providing research, we're, presi- we're providing um, tangible things that you can immediately use in the schools. And it's all about being strength-based. Mm-hmm. Just, just quickly, what are the people, what website do they go to to find that? Yeah, sure. It's strengthbasedcollective.com. There we go. And I'll make sure I put that in the chat too. Now, Dr. Reed, the other thing that um, I can relate to you with and that you really opened my eyes on was at the Black School of Psych conference, you did a presentation about being multiracial or or mixed race, but not presenting as the race that you are per se. Um, I haven't had, and to go with my story, you know, my grandmother is white. My mom is black um, or mixed. She was born in 1970, so at the height of you know civil rights and things. But I grew up on the one drop rule. You got one drop, you black. That's it. So I've always considered myself black, and my mother has always considered herself biracial. And I honestly didn't really get it. I'm like, mom, you're black. You know, mm-hmm. deal with it. And hearing what your presentation meant about mixed race, and even having the opportunity to choose what race or race is. I identify with what really hit home with me. And it wasn't a perspective that I had seen shared before. Can can you talk about um your your experience as a mixed race child and, and adult? Yeah, yeah. So um it has been very challenging for me. I always start with that. I know, you know, it seems like today um I can talk very comfortably about this, I can present on it, but it's still a very um it's something that has really impacted me throughout my whole life. Race has always been just like the, one of the biggest impactors of all of my experiences. Um, but growing up, I was in a predominantly, I started in predominantly black um, schools up through fourth grade. And then I switched to predominantly white schools from fifth grade through high school, um, through graduation. So I think in both spaces, I felt a little kind of like I couldn't really be my full self, you know, in the black spaces, it was kind of like, oh, well, you're not black, you're not black enough. And then your black mom and dad coming to pick you up. And that's confusing. And you know, kids don't understand anything. And I remember at one point, actually, I was called, um, there was another girl named Kelsey, who presented as more black, and they called me white Kelsey and her black Kelsey. And I would go home to my all black family. So for context, my, um, I grew up all black family. I don't have any connections um, to when I was growing up to my white side of the family. So all I knew was that I'm black. I look like this, but I'm black. And my mom did a pretty good job of trying to be open about it. Um, But it's hard, especially, you know, back, you know, in the early 2000s, there's not really a ton Mm -hmm. of people talking about this. So I think um, I spent the majority of my childhood just kind of trying to fit in. I felt like everyone was always staring at me, but it was my own, you know, in my head. Um, And then I think once I got into undergrad and grad school and I started doing a lot of research, um, I was a psych and social major during undergrad. So I took like a race and ethnicity class that kind of blew my mind and got me like really interested in this topic. Um, And then in grad school, same thing. 
And I started to get more comfortable with my identity. Like, you know, this is who I am. I know this is how I present. I can't, I didn't choose to present like this, but this is who I am. And this is my identity and I can identify however I want. The third phase was when I moved from grad school to, I'm currently in Maryland and I moved to Upper Marlboro, Maryland at the time, which is one of the largest predominantly black counties in the country. I was living with my grandparents from my mom's side, um, all black. And that was another kind of moment for me because I'm going to grocery stores, I'm going out in the community, and I, once again, am in this this space where I am perceived as white, but I know that I'm mixed and I'm working in predominantly black public schools and just, so it's been, it's been a long process for me. I'm, I'm still on the journey. I'm nowhere near the finish yeah. line of just kind of embracing mm -hmm. who I am and finding ways to still contribute to this topic, to this, mm -hmm. to my mission, to my passions, um, you know, but being true to myself as well. Yeah. That's, that's, that's real, Kelsey. Thank you for, for sharing that too. Um, and I can think about just, I just want to bounce some things with you for like perspective and understanding myself. You know, similarly, I live in the South, South Carolina, and it feels really good being in a community where everybody is black, where I'm from in the Midwest. There's only certain jobs that black people did and certain jobs white people did. But, but here, all the leaders are black, all the bus drivers are black, all the servers, were every, just everywhere you go is black. And it feels very comforting to see people that look like me. And so I'm, I'm guessing it might, maybe it's the opposite. You know, growing up in the Midwest, you, you see everybody do everything or certain or a classism or racism, whatever. But now I'm in the position where it's like, wow, this, this feels good to, to be in an environment where everybody looks like me and understands my culture. And I can just think about like the dissonance that may be there because it probably does feel just as good for you to be surrounded by people that uh, look like you or, or have your your cultural background mm -hmm. but then I guess yeah is it is it like you man that's 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 interesting because you 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 probably feel good but then you're getting looks from other people yep. that are like what what's this white girl doing here or whatever the case is and and Am I hitting on anything there? Do you, you are. Yeah. It's it's like I feel comfortable. I'm like, oh, these are my people. But I I'm in my head about mm -hmm. how I'm being perceived by them. And that was the piece that I needed to know wow. was being in my head, wow. you know, because these are my people and I, I can only yeah. do, you know, I, I don't need to prove myself. I think that mm -hmm. was another thing is feeling like <clears> I needed <throat> to prove that I belong here, that I need to yeah. be here. And you know that that didn't last long. You you can't do that. Mm -hmm. You have to stay true to who you are, regardless. Oh. You know how you look, how you're perceived. I, you know, I, I feel like too. Even as you you're saying that, I remember. You know, I get called white sometimes too, mm -hmm. um, and not because of my presentation, but the way I speak. I remember a student as a sophomore. She would she was for about an hour, and I just I took it and I just walked worked through it with her. Yeah. Hey, you're not black. Black people don't talk like that. Where you come from? Oh yeah, you you definitely not black. But why you do this? Or why you do that? Or why you sound like this? Or why you sound like that? And you know, I just ate it for a little bit. But two years later, her and I tight. You know, thick as thieves. You know, she she we were on the same page. And it just took working through that. And so I think one of the things that I've recognized, and I'm curious if you recognize too, even if it is a predominantly black space, when when white folks come in, it's usually not a problem as long as you're yourself. Mm -hmm. It's when it looks like your 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 culture vulture, or it looks like when you are trying too hard to do something. That's when it's a problem. But like I, I went to a PWI 
And even when we had, you know, the, the white capital or you go to the, the comedy show and there's some white folks there, white folks sometimes get the most love too um, in those scenarios, but it's typically when they're being themselves. And again, dissonance here because people might give you shout out for go white girl, I'm not white, you know? So it's it's that might be a clash in itself, but is there a way or a case, I guess, man, this is just interesting. I'm just hearing the dissonance as I'm talking out loud yeah on like just feeling comfortable yeah and on top of that not to add more to it but it's me recognizing obviously the white privilege that I have Mm. so you know I have these experiences I have this perspective but I have to acknowledge that I am treated differently than Mm. my family members who are visibly perceived as black yeah that's like a whole other layer of you know I can't be all poor me what was me like that's no that's not how I operate because Mm -hmm. you know there are you know things that come with this that also need to be acknowledged so it's it's a lot of layers it's a lot yeah because because man because I I just told you I my my suggestion or my thought was like be yourself yep but depending on the space that you're in being yourself is perceived differently Yep. So I, I I hear that. I hear that, Dr. Reed. And, yeah. you know, I understand why you're working through it, because I don't think there's an easy answer or a definitive answer and solution to it. But I appreciate you um, being bold enough to share your voice. And and I, some people may meet it with like, you know, what's she what's she talking about? Why is this even important? Yeah. But I think for folks that care about people, you know, and are, are interested in those perspectives, I, I can see it and I can hear it. And I appreciate you sharing that because I'm as I'm mixed race, multiracial myself. And have not even considered some of the questions that you brought up in the 30 years of my existence. So um, thank you very much for sharing that. And is there anything else that from the strengths-based collective to hacking deficit thinking to your mixed race experience, is there anything else that you would like to share with adults or with students in those categories? I know that's a big question on purpose, so you can take it where you want to. Yeah, that's broad. Um, I think what I'll go with, I'm trying to bring them all together. Um, for me, when I started to view my experiences on the things that I bring to the table as strengths rather than challenges, because I think as you heard when I was speaking, when I was younger, it was a challenge. It was this, it was that. When I started to shift my thinking that, you know, no, this is a gift. This is a strength. How can I use this strength? that's when I really started to kind of get in my zone and feel really good about where I'm at in life and what I'm doing. So I think for anyone um, listening, think about what areas you would consider to be a challenge. And I'm not saying this is easy. It's really hard. But try to reframe it and think about ways that you can use that challenge and reframe it into a strength, something that you can use to to better yourself, better, better your life. Um, I think that is the advice that I would give. And especially with our students and with our children, I think I'm, that's the area I'm most passionate about is how we can get our children to be talking about their strengths. So mm-hmm. finding those gems, finding your your gift to the world and figuring out ways to to really use that. I think as an adult and as a child, a lot of adults aren't really using their their strengths either. We're all kind of miserable, let's be honest. So yeah. um, really just you know finding ways to do that, I think would be my my takeaway. I love it. And you told us where, where to find the strengths-based information at the Strengths-Based Collective 
you can Google hacking deficit thinking. Where else can the people go to get in contact with you? Yeah, you can email me at um, Kelsey at strengthbasedcollective.com. I'm on Twitter, Dr. Kelsey Reed, Instagram, Dr. Kelsey Reed. I just joined Threads, Dr. Kelsey Reed. I haven't used it yet, but I'm on there. Um, so any of those platforms, yes. Excellent, excellent. Um, you heard it, y'all. This is this is good information. Pride ourselves on having real conversations and challenging conversations. After 200 and almost 250 episodes, this is certainly a conversation I have not had before, Dr. Reed. So thank you for coming and um, gracing us with your presence and, and given all this information and knowledge that you have to share. I wish you the best in your future endeavors as well. And thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. My pleasure. And for everybody listening, if you like this episode, share it. Go check out Dr. Reed on her social platforms and tune in next time. This is The Dash. Thanks for listening to us on The Dash Podcast. I definitely hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you liked it, share it with a friend, share it with an educator, share it with someone who needs to hear the message from this episode. You can visit our website, seleducators.com to learn more about our online courses and professional development training for schools and districts. We'll see you next time. This is The Dash.